1: Welcome to the Darkened Hour. Welcome to another episode of the Darkened Hour. I'm your host, Adam Fitzgerald. Today's episode will be surrounding the Egyptian Muslim Brotherhood and the genesis of the fundamentalist organizations that splintered off from the organization. In order to give a clear explanation as to why this is important, because many of the proponents of the leading fundamentalist leaders that we saw in the late 20th century came from Egypt. And the ideologies that they bring. Uh, resonates still today within the more fundamentalist organizations like the Islamic State, Boko Haram in Africa, Abu Sayyaf in the Philippines and Indonesia, and the remaining uh, al-Qaeda sects that exist in Africa, Yemen, Iraq, and the Arabian Peninsula. And in order to give justification or to give it legitimacy, we need to return back to a certain point in time. And this will be a longer episode as usual because I want to give you, the listener, a general understanding of how these organizations, like the Brotherhood or the Egyptian Islamic Jihad, how these organizations originate. Where do they get their beliefs from? And so we'll start in 1906 with an individual named Hassan Albana. Hassan Albana was born in Beharia Government in 1906. The governor was located near the delta north of the country. Bonner was raised as a very studious and careful child, interested in Egyptian politics even at the young age of 13 during the Egyptian Revolution of 1919. Now, Al was young but clearly remembered when the radio played a historic moment, not just for himself but for all of Egypt. Lord Edmund Henry Allenby of the British Imperial Governor declared Egyptian independence on February 28, 1922. All remaining influence would also dissipate in time. After the abolition of the Ottoman Empire in 1924, Albana became a teacher at the da in Islamilla near the west bank of the Suez Canal. Now at this time, Egypt was ruled by the Muhammad Ali dynasty. Muhammad Ali Pasha is considered the primary ruler of early age Egypt in 1805. He was under the Ottoman Empire. Now, this dynasty ruled Egypt until the Revolution of 1952 with British Empire influence. At the time, King Farouk was the leader of Egypt. And King Farouk himself would come under fire in the early period of the 1950s where he would lose interest in politics after World War II and was a noted hedonist and was corruptible. Egypt at this time was also undergoing a class warfare. The stark income disparities of Egyptian society meant that the wealth of Egypt was very unequally distributed within the kingdom. Now, Egypt was considered the richest country in the Middle East after World War II, uh, having 500 millionaires, while the Felhaddin Egyptian society lived in extreme poverty. Hassan al-Banna in the city of Islamilia, along with six workers from the Suez Canal Company, founded the Brotherhood, the Muslim Brotherhood, which were to be a pan-Islamic religious, political, and social movement. It meant to usurp British colonial rule from Egypt and establish a Sharia-based government led by the Quran and Sunnah. al believed that Islam had lost its essence within the Arab world and blamed pan-Arab nationalism and Western influence. al also wanted to delegitimize corporal Corporate and foreign capitalists from Egyptian society and their tyrannical exploits of the working Arab community, especially in the tourism sector. He saw King Farouk as nothing more than an opportunist, someone who was willing to cater to the rich and affluent instead of the rest of Egyptian society. In the early stages of its formation, the Brotherhood's slogan was Islam is the solution. Albana wanted to bring back Islamic Sunni jurisprudence in universities and in the private as well as the public sectors in order to create a true caliphate within an Arab nation. By 1948, the Brotherhood grew to 2 million people. The British considered them a threat to the established rule in the country, and under King Farouk, the Egyptian government, led by the Makbath Amin al-Dalwa, or the State Security Investigation Service, arrested hundreds of the high ranking members of the Brotherhood. After some assassinations took place of government employees, the Brotherhood was legitimately banned. Now, the Brotherhood were actively supporting the Arab revolt in Palestine as well, while Israeli-Zionist Stern and Ergun gangs were slaughtering Palestinians, it was the Brotherhood who began sending foreign aid, guns, weapons to Palestinian splinter groups. Secretly, the Brotherhood were being supported with large sums of money from the Nazi regime between 1938 and 1942. This helped to further grow the organization. However, King Farouk saw the dangers posed by Albana as the Islamists began taking a further hold on lower Egypt. Meanwhile, the pan-Arab nationalist ideology, which were proliferated through many educated Arab students and professors working at universities like the prestigious Al-Azhar University, began to publish magazines and form clubs promoting the idea of a unified Arab community or Arab nation. The conflicting Arab nations, which were diverse, began to bear witness to the works of Dadawish al-Makdidi, who believed that a free and unified Arab nation could only exist if Western influence was removed from the Arab Middle East. Pan-Arabism's popularity began to grow after many Arab countries gained independence in the 1940s and 50s. There would be a monumental event, one that would turn the Brotherhood to a more rigorous organization. And this took place on February 12, 1949, as Hassan al Banar's brother brother-in-law, Abdul Karim Mansour, was scheduled to negotiate with the government's representative, Minister Zaki al-Pasha, at the Jamiat al Subhan al Muslimin headquarters in Cairo. But Ali Pasha never arrived. And the two men who were waiting in the streets decided to leave. As they stood waiting for a taxi, they were shot by two men. Albana eventually died from his wounds. King Farouk and his Iron Guard of Egypt were accused of being behind the assassination, although some thought it came from the national police. Some even suspected the SSI. The SSI was originally formed as the intelligence wing of the national police, but they later became a strict security service under the socialist regime under Gamal Nasser later on. By 1948, the Brotherhood, even though that Abana was assassinated, had expanded to Syria, Lebanon, Bahrain, Turkey, Iran, Palestine, Jordan, the United Kingdom, and even the United States. An estimated 2,000 branches and 500,000 members were sympathizers in total. In 1952, the Egyptian monarchy under King Farouk would come come under a full coup d'etat led by the Free Officers Movement, in which many members of the Egyptian military, including Mohammed Negwib, Gamal Abdel Nasser, and Anwar Sadat were involved. The coup aimed at changing political leadership in Egypt to a more progressive pro-American leadership, and it was thought they were to be led By General Naguib, who became the nation's very first president. The aim was to end the monarchy and establish a republic, since under Farouk, the monarchy led by the Muhammad Ali dynasty, named after Egypt's founder Muhammad Ali Pasha, was seen as a corrupted regime, one that siphoned hundreds of millions of dollars to the high-ranking affluent members of Egyptian society. Meanwhile, much of the country was living under the poverty line. The Free Officers Movement was also adamantly opposed to British colonial rule, similar to that of the Brotherhood. In fact, certain members of the Free Officers Movement included Gamal Abdel Nasser, meaning with members of the Muslim Brotherhood. The Brotherhood wanted a prominent membership within Egyptian politics in the hopes of living up to Bana's ideology that Egypt would one day become Islamic. The Egyptian turmoil within state government didn't even end there. And in 1953, Mohammed Naguib banned all parties and created the Liberation Rally, which were pro-Revolutionary Command Council, RCC, which were a governing body established to supervise the Republic of Egypt, to which Naguib was its chairman and Nasser as its vice chairman. At around this time, Sayyid Kutub, a prominent scholar of literary arts and author, who was also born in the Assiut province, traveled to the United States to further his education at the Colorado State of Education and stayed there between 1948 to 1950. Qutub's first major theoretical work of religious social criticism, entitled Al-Adala Al-Ijima Iya Al-Islam, or Social Justice in Islam, was published in 1949. Kutub also suffered from introvertness, isolation, and depression, leading him to make criticisms of society which catered to selfishness, wastefulness, and abject violence. He didn't make many friends. He returned to his native Egypt in 1951. Before his return to Egypt, however, Kutub was adamantly opposed to the radical fundamentalist unit of the Brotherhood. He saw that the Islamization of education, for example, as infringing upon the free rights of secular Arabs. But when he returned to his native Egypt in 1951, he made many outspoken critiques of Western lifestyle that he witnessed. Also in 1951, he published his second work, called The America That I Have Seen, where he exclaimed that the West adorned materialism, individual freedoms, a poor economic system, racism, and brutal boxing matches. He did, however, like the Hollywood films and its classical music, but he despised jazz. His experiences while inside the United States made him fully aware of the dangers that have been translated into Arab culture. And it was here that he finally supported Islamism and joined the Muslim Brotherhood in the fall of 1951. Three years later, in January of 1954, Mohammed Naguib tried to align himself with the Brotherhood. Naguib then announced his resignation from the RCC, by which General Nasser, who was a staunch pan-Arabist, a nationalist, put him under house arrest on February 26. He saw the dangers of aligning Egyptian politics with the Brotherhood. Now the Brotherhood, by the tens of thousands, protested the arrest of Naguib and called for the end of Nasser. But on March 5, 1954, Nasser's security services arrested thousands of participants in the uprising. On October 26, 1954, Muslim Brotherhood member Mahmoud Abdul Latif attempted to assassinate Gamal Abdul Nasser while he was delivering a speech in Alexandria while live on radio broadcast. The assassination attempt backfired, quickly playing into Nasser's hands. It would haunt the Brotherhood for years to come with arrests of thousands of dissenters, mostly members of the Brotherhood, but also communists, and the dismissal of over 140 officers loyal to Naguib and by June of 1956 Nasser became the second president of Egypt just 2 years prior he became the first person to draft its first constitution Naguib immediately was placed under house arrest in his villa in Cairo however In meetings between the Muslim Brotherhood, and Nasser, Nasser had told them that the Brotherhood would become part of Egyptian politics. But this was ultimately a lie. Nasser had secretly set up an organization that would sufficiently oppose the Brotherhood once he came to power. This organization was called the Tahir, or Freedom in Arabic. Khutub, however, was keen on Nasser's double-talk and turned down every offer to work in the educational and arts sector. Khutub and the Brotherhood decided to create plans to assassinate Nasser after it was found out that Nasser had plans to break up the Brotherhood in total. Kutub and those in the Brotherhood involved in the plot were soon arrested, as the SSI had informants within the Brotherhood. Khutub was also a victim of torture at this time. But while in prison in 1954, he would author two of the most influential works that he ever would write in his life. The Fi Zilal al-Quran were translated In the Shade of the Quran and a manifesto of political Islam called Mamalim fil Tariq or Milestones. They would become a form of Islamic political thought called Kutubism. These works were encompassing his radically anti-secular and anti-Western claims based on his interpretations of the Quran, Islamic history, and the social and political problems of Egypt. Khutub's works were beginning to become the essence of Egyptian life, especially those within the Orthodox sector, some who would have a great impact in the late 20th century. But, his arrest caught the ire and the attention of many prominent Arabs in the Middle East, including one Prime Minister of Iraq, Abdul Salim Arif, in 1964, when he pressured Nasser for Kutub's release, in which he won. However, in just eight months later, he was rearrested on false charges of wishing to assassinate Gamal Nasser and overthrow Egyptian government. Nasser, however, gave him an out, so it seems. He was to ab- adamantly oppose the Basel Brotherhood and apologize. However, Kutub refused to acquiesce to Nasser's demands of an apology, and Khutub was hanged on August 29, 1966. Immediately, Kutub was considered a martyr and was given global recognition from the Arab community. His works began circulating even faster. Just a year prior to his execution, a young boy had joined the Brotherhood. He would later have huge implications, not just in Egypt, but to the United States and the world. He was 14 when he joined, and he was enamored with the works of Sayyid Qutb. This young man was Ayman al-Zahwarri. Meanwhile, the ideology of pan-Arab nationalism had made countries such as Iran, Libya, Syria, Iraq, and Egypt financially stable due to the disenfranchisement of Western influence. The Arabs thought that they controlled the oil market. They controlled their own future. But, But just 10 years earlier, in 1952, the document made by the British government entitled The Dangers of Pan-Arab Nationalism, warned that if the Arabs controlled the region, it would become a threat to the monarchy and future control of trade, which included oil regulation. One event would change not just the Arab ideology, but forever alter its country's financial and geopolitical influence. On June 5th, June 10th, 1967, Israel would defeat Egypt, Jordan, Iraq, Lebanon, and Syria on surprise attacks through land and air. It would be commonly known as the Six-Day War. Across the Arab world, Jewish minority communities fled or were expelled with refugees going mainly to Israel. Many Israeli commanders who were involved would later on have a direct impact in Middle East politics, as well as Israeli politics. Moishi Danyan, Yitzhak Rabin, Ariel Sharon, and Izar Weitzman. The loss devastated the Arab world over, and the pan-Arab ideology that was already weakening was now beginning to lose its Arab populace. One sector that took full advantage of this were the Islamists. They saw the secular ideology as not just a fault for the war, but also against the Quran and Sunnah as depicted by the Prophet Muhammad. And many religious leaders, especially in Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Syria, and Jordan, began lamenting the secular Arab governments as being opposed not just to the people, but to the religion itself. The Qutubists were the most vocal. One man in particular, who would later have an impact in the Muslim world, and who was opposed to pan-Arab nationalism, and communism, was a young Palestinian imam and teacher Abdul Azam, who was also a Palestinian Qadi and teacher of Sharia law in Cairo University. Azam was studying at the Al Azhar University, getting a PhD in the principles of Islamic jurisprudence in 1973, while being acquainted during his stay with the ideas of Sayyid Qutb. He was also adamantly opposed at the Palestinian Liberation Organization and considered them Marxist and under the influence of the Soviet Union. Meanwhile, Egyptian conflict against Israel continued, and in 1968, the War of Attrition commenced as Nasser tried to reclaim what was lost in the Six-Day War. It was met with failure. And in June of 1970, Nasser accepted the U.S.-sponsored Rogers Plan, which called for an end to hostilities and an Israeli withdrawal from Egyptian territory. But it was rejected by Israel, the PLO, and most Arab states, except Jordan. On September 28, 1970, Nasser would die from a heart attack. His death was met with great reverence as many notable Arab leaders came and paid their respects to the man Who changed the Arab landscape. But old traditions die hard and pan-Arab nationalism would end up dying with him. The Vice President, Anwar Sadat, would be sworn in as the third president of Egypt. Sadat was considered far more liberal than Nasser and wished to do away with many socialist-oriented political ideas from Egyptian society. Sadat wished to conduct a military engagement against Israel but was told not to by the Soviet Union. For in 1978, 1970, he tried to re-engage relations with, but ousted most of the Soviet Union analysts that were in the country, as well as their advisors. By the fall of 1973, Sadat had support for a war of more than 100 states, including most of the countries of the Arab League. Meanwhile, Saudi Arabia began to spend tens of millions in the height of the oil boom through profits of the petroleum industry to spread the ideas of Wahhabi Islam, a radical form of a Sunni Islamic school of thought. Egypt became a full recipient throughout this decade that involved the Brotherhood. This would begin a new rise of the religious sector in Egypt that had not been seen since the days of King Farouk. Sadat was unlike Nasser in that he wished not to become as indignant toward the Egyptian minority, mainly the Islamists, and many hundreds of the brotherhood that were jailed were suddenly released, giving life back to the the deposed leadership of the organization. There will also be splinter groups created out of this organization. On October 6, 1973, in conjunction with Hafez al-Assad of Syria, Sadat launched the October War, also known as the Yom Kippur War, a surprise attack on Israeli forces occupying the Syrian Golan Heights and the Egyptian Sinai Peninsula as well as an attempt to retake uh, the respective Egyptian and Syrian territories that had been occupied as, by Israel since the Six-Day War. The war ended under a relatively cordial peace agreement, where Israel came away with an undue respect for Egyptians' military under Sadat. Even with this temporary vic- victory, Egypt was still under a class warfare system and in 1977, the bread riots began. Egyptian society protested Sadat's economic liberalization and specifically a government decree lifting price controls on basic necessities such as bread. The riots lasted for two days and included hundreds of thousands in Cairo. 120 buses and hundreds of buildings were destroyed in Cairo alone, and Sadat immediately began trying to repair relations with not just the West, but also with Israel. The latter would ultimately cause a major shift in Egypt. On on November 19, 1977, Sadat became the first Arab leader to visit Israel, where he met with Israeli Prime Minister Menachem Begin. Egypt's more fervent Islamic scholars, who had a tradition of sorts recruiting students in the courtyards at local universities, came under attack with the National Egyptian Police and the brutal SSI, began revolting against this affront. A shadow war that the global news outlets neglected altogether. Many dozens would die at the brutality in the streets. This would also cause many splinter groups from the Muslim Brotherhood, which began a reformation of sorts as they tried to way Egyptian politics. Two of those groups were formed were Al-Jihad and the Gamma Islamiyah. After Sadat's visit to Israel, he met with U.S. President Jimmy Carter and Israeli Prime Minister Menachem Begin at the Camp David Accords on March 26, 1979. The peace deal was monumental. The main features of this agreement were the mutual recognition of each country by the other, as well as the cessation of the state of war that had existed since the 1948 Arab-Israeli War and the complete withdrawal by Israel of its armed forces and civilians from the rest of the Sinai Peninsula. The agreement also provided for the free passage of Israeli ships through the Suez Canal and recognition of the Strait of Tiran and the Gulf of Aqaba as international waterways. However, not everyone approved of the peace deal brokered and headed by the United States. Arab nations such as Syria and Iraq thought it was a betrayal of Arab unity with Zionists. The Islamists wanting something else, however. An Islamic caliphate in Egypt, one that Saeed Qutb once envisioned. Many university students who were in the more radical fundamentalist circles were beginning to form their own groups. They saw the Brotherhood as not adhering to the works of Kutub, and wanted instead to work with the Arab government, in, in that the Brotherhood was wanting to work with the Arab governments. The Kutubists, those of the Al-Jihad and Gamma Islamiyah, wanted to Islamize Egypt, not work with its government. There would be certain Egyptian military members, such as Khalid Islambouli, a first lieutenant of the 17th Artillery Regiment in the Egyptian army, and Aboud El-Zomar of the 115th Mechanized Infantry Regiment of the Intelligence Wing of the army, who were adamantly involved with al-Jihad, which was headed by Muhammad Abd al-Saram Faraj. Faraj had a mosque built by his own in-laws, which where selected members would hear him preach about revolutionary jihad. It was a small circle of people. Faraj dismissed the notion that inner spiritual struggle was the greater jihad as a fabricated tradition and emphasized the role of armed combat. Where it was once attributed to al-Zawahari, it was Faraj who coined the term near-enemy for Arab governments in contrast to the far enemy, such as Israel and the United States. Faraj thought that the near enemy, which were Arab governments, were to be Islamized, which would take time. And soon, these Arab governments would be Islamic governments. And it wouldn't just stop with Egypt. It would would spread to countries such as Iraq, Afghanistan, Libya, Syria, Lebanon, Jordan, Qatar and the and in such by growing this Caliphate they would then fight against the far enemy, which was the secular West, the United States its coalition partners and Israel and only then by Islamizing, and creating the caliphate, would they entertain a war with Judea and the Crusaders, such as they did in the early 12th and 13th centuries. Faraj built on Kuttub's idea that modern Islamic societies represented Jalaliyah, or the state of ignorance, that pervaded in the pre-Islamic Arab world, and used the ideas of Ibn Tamiyyah to blame this on modern apostate Islamic rulers, even to be a to be being that a prominent Hadith scholar. Much of the radical fundamentalists that we see today, in the Islamic State, or Al-Nusra, uh, al- Al-Qaeda, uh, were following the works of Hadith scholars like Ibn Tamir or Ibn Hambali as opposed to uh, being legitimate in Quranic scholarship. Meanwhile, the Gamma Islamiyah headed by Rafai Taha was more about secrecy and members were told never to mention its existence to anyone outside the organization. Now, Ayman al-Swahari of al-Jihad said that one of the reasons for the failure of Gamma Islamiyah is that it was so concerned about secrecy that it would never distribute any literature that appealed to the common people. He explained that it was for this reason that clandestine movements do not work in Egypt. He added that any Islamic movement that does not connect with the masses loses any reason to exist. And just years prior, Zohadi formed his own group that involved Ismail Kantawi, Said Hanafi, Isim al Kamari, Saeed Imam Abdulaziz, who also goes by Dr. Fadl, Amin Yusuf al-Domeri, Muhammad Abdulraqin al-Shaqari, and Muhammad al-Zawahari. Many of these were educated from universities, and they were also hardline Islamists, who weren't afraid to be outspoken. They began to coordinate an operation which was to assassinate Sadat and hope to remove remaining Sadat loyalists and institute a Sharia-based government led by the Quran and Sunnah. It was what Faraj had always believed and what Kutub had envisioned in his works. Sadat by 1980-1981 had internal problems which included a failed coup led by opposition forces in the military Abu Zomar had begun finalizing the plans for usurping the Sadat government. He was given authorization by Faraj and some members of Gamma Islamiya and Al Jihad. Zabud or Zomar's plan, Omar Zabud's plan was to kill the main leaders of the country, capture the headquarters of the army and state security the Telephone Exchange Building, and as well as the Radio and Television Building, where news of the Islamic Revolution would then be broadcast, unleashing a popular uprising against secular authority all over the country. The plan was approved by a fatwa made by a blind cleric and a co-leader of the Kamala Islamiyah, Omar Abdul Rahman. Meanwhile, Zomar and Faraj gave the full authority of borders which were then sent to Khalid Isambouli. By February of 1981, the SSI had got wind of an assassination plot of Sadat and arrested approximately 1,500 suspected members of many of the jihadist groups. Members of the Gamma Islamiyah, however, recruited military members like Isambouli and Zomar and many others. It spoke to some in the military who saw the looming threat of secularism. On October six of 1981, Anwar Sadat, along with his vice president, Hosni Mubarak, were attending front row at the annual victory parade held in Cairo to celebrate Egypt's crossing of the Suez Canal. A military truck pulled near the front of the facade where Sadat was sitting, and Khalid Islambouli and others jumped out of the truck. They began lobbying grenades and shot in the direction of Sadat. It was captured on camera. Eleven others were killed, which included an Omani and a Cuban dignitary. Immediately in the aftermath, Mubarak, who was shot in the wrist, was sworn in as Egypt's fourth president. And unlike his former in Sadat, he would become the Islamist's antagonist. In the same fashion as Nasser. However, Mubarak would be much more vicious toward them. Three hundred and two accused Islamists for the assassination, which included the arrest of Ayman al-Swahari, Alma Abd al-Rahman, Taha, Abu Zamar, Khalid Islambuli, and Muhammad ibn Abdullah Faraj, were all sentenced and sent to Torah prison. However, the SSI didn't arrest another leading figure of al-Jihad and a prominent member in the Egyptian military, Isam al-Khamadi. The SSI knew that al-Zwahati was close friends to Isam al-Khamadi and would employ horrific torture methods on Zwahati, whom gave pertinent information and led the SSI to a secret mosque where Isam al-Khamadi would pray. Kamadi would be arrested, with the Zwahati in tow acting as the informant. It would haunt al zwahari for decades after. And admittedly, in his own writings, it would help shape him into a more fervent jihadist. One of those writings was Nights Under the Prophet's Banner, where he would reiterate Faraj's mantra of the near enemy and the far enemy, as well as what the Egyptian SSI did to him in terms of torture. And help shaping Zwahari into a radical fundamentalist. As the Egyptian authorities searched Faraj's house, they would find a manuscript, which had 500 publishings immediately afterwards. The manuscript entitled Al Farida Al Gahiba, or in translation to the English, The Neglected Duty, where Faraj maintained with absolute certainty that jihad would enable Muslims to rule the world and to reestablish the caliphate. The Sadat case was held at the Egypt Higher State Security Court in Nasr City Exhibition Center. The suspects were held in the notorious Torah prison, where the SSI conducted various torture methods on many of the suspects, including waterboarding, electric shock of stomach, hands, and feet, and cigarettes on body parts. While in prison, Faraj asked Karim Zodi, another prominent member of Gamma Islamiyah, to unite the jihadi groups into a single Gamma Islamiyah group. They were a north and southern group. Now there would be two groups. Gamma Islamiyah, led by Karim Zori, Rafai Taha, and Omar Abdel Rahman, and the Al jihad now named the Egyptian Islamic Jihad, led by Mohammed Abdel Faraj, Abu Zal-Zamar, and Ayman al-Swahari. Faraj specified during the trial that Sadat was not killed for the Israeli peace deal, but that Egypt was not led by the Quran and Sunnah and that only violent jihad was to expunge the secular government and replace it with one that was led by the Sharia. However, there were many Muslim imams that had neglected Faraj and Rahman's credentials, pointing out that Faraj had trained as an electrician rather than an Islamic jur- jurist, while Rahman was simply adhering to the Hadiths rather than Muhammad's teachings. During the trial, one outspoken individual became quite notable. Ayman al wahidi while in prison, would exclaim that the trial was basically a sham.
0: And now as an answer to the second question. Why did they bring us here? They bring us here for two reasons. First first, in a trial to avoid the expanding Islamic movement which threatens these dishonest dishonest Asian Arab regimes. By the by the stupid agent Anwaris Sadat. دم المسلم نشكر بعض دم المسلم دم المسلم دم المسلم in the horrible prison of al Qara, and the prison of Torah, and the prison of al-Istiqbal, and the prison of al-Marj, where we suffered the severest inhuman treatment. There, they tre- they, they kicked us, they beat us, they whipped us with the electric cable, they shocked us with electricity, they shocked us with electricity, and they used there the wild dogs, and they used there the wild dogs, and they hanged us over the edges of the doors with our hands. Died at the back. We there they there they arrested the wives, the mothers, the fathers, the sisters, and the sons in a trial to put the psychological press over these innocent prisoners.
1: Nevertheless, those involved with the plot were executed. Faraj, Islam and three others were executed by hanging. Rahman was expelled from the country due to no evidence he was involved in the plot. He went to Afghanistan in 1985 to involve himself with the young with the Afghan war and met with the young Abdul Azam, as well as a young Saudi named Osama bin Laden. He then traveled to Cairo and applied for a US visa and was approved by CIA officers who acted as visa agents and approved of his application to entered the United States in July of 1990. Ayman al-Swahati was released, and in 1981, he worked at the Red Crescent Hospital treating Afghan wo- wounded refugees in Peshawar, Pakistan. As the Soviets invaded Afghanistan, Egypt began releasing hundreds of the Islamists in hopes they would be killed in the war. Mubarak would begin cracking down on those even suspected of being involved with fundamentalist groups for years to come. Mubarak himself would also be a victim of an assassination plot in 1995. Members of the Egyptian Islamic Jihad tried to assassinate uh, Mubarak while he was in Ethiopia, uh, while he was attending a conference of the Organization of African Unity, Uh, One shooter began opening fire and was killed in the process by Mubarak's security detail. Mubarak, however, was quite a pragmatist, and during the 1980s, he radically improved Egypt's quality of life, which included uh, increasing the production of clothing, furniture, affordable housing. Um, He was also a staunch anti-Zionist and refused to repair relations with Israel. On October 1st of 1995, Omar Abdel Rahman was convicted of seditious conspiracy, solicitation to murder Egyptian president Hosmi Mubarak, conspiracy to murder president Mubarak, and solicitation to attack a US military installation. Members of the Gamma Islamiyah began constructing operations to force Rahman's release. And on November 17, 1997, six Members of the Gamma Islamiya killed fifty eight foreign nationals and four Egyptians while inside the Luxor in Dier El Barhari. Many were hacked to death, and pamphlets were stuffed in the mouths and cuts of their victims, advocating for the release of the blind Sheikh Rahman. However, if the Gamma Islamiyah thought this would have an effect on Mubarak's government, it tremendously backfired. Mubarak was even far more punishing than ever before as the world stage saw the horror firsthand of Egypt's radical fundamentalists, which would then set them back for many years to come. As for the Muslim Brotherhood, the organization itself went through multiple reforms that had critics and defenders of the group, including Israeli politics, who would later say that the Brotherhood was more Arab than fundamentalist by its nature. By the late 20th century, it established itself more prominently with the advent of the Internet. Mubarak came under fire by his political opponents in Egypt's public life, as corruption was rife in Mubarak's cabinet, and by 2011, the country was in full-on revolution between pro- and and anti-Mubarak protesters. Mubarak stated in a speech that he would not leave, and thus many would end up dying in the uh, protest themselves. On February 28, 2011, Mubarak was placed under house arrest for failing to stop the deadly clash of protesters. The Muslim Brotherhood took power in Egypt to a series of popular elections, with Egyptians electing Islamist and former Brotherhood member Mohammed Morsi to the presidency in June of 2012. The Muslim Brotherhood was now legitimate. And with that came power. From the age of King Farouk, the Brotherhood tried to oust not just the Ottoman Empire, but British colonial rule. The Muslim Brotherhood then tried to advocate for a caliphate led by Hassan al This would later change as through the works of Sayyid Kutub, who tried to radically transform not just Egyptian society, but Arab society as well, in deposing and advocating against secularism, communism, and pan-Arabism, in favor of a more Arab caliphate, one that was similar to Hassan al but with the death of Qutb came more radical fundamentalists. And this came through the uh, political, the strict political adherence, deterrence of Islamism in nature. Many of these people, such as Ayman al swahari Omar Abdelrahman, um, Dr. Fadu, Imam Saeed Sharif, Dr. Farrell, uh these people weren't fundamentalists by their nature. They were created fundamentalists by the state's own torturous practices. Um, even though that they adhered to the more radical principles, they didn't have the power to employ these. It wasn't until these uh, dictatorships um gave them the motivations and persuaded uh, the public sector to show adherence to these Islamist groups. And that's how groups like the Egyptian Islamic Jihad, uh, the Gamma Islamiya, were to persuade uh, the public sector in Egypt was through uh, the manipulation of the poor, those who are wanting those who actually suffered under Nasser, under um, Hosni Babarik, the, the people that... Um, the victims of class warfare, in which I wanted to reiterate in this podcast specifically, because there are multiple factors at play in how these groups uh, began to grow and how their ideologies change over time into more radical fundamentalists. It's through a perversion of the faith, and it's through their experiences with secular governments, it's through their hardships, and it's through their own ignorance. As as I've told you before, the ideologies that were permeated by Kutub by Zwahari or Muhammad ibn al-Faraj, as well as Osama bin Laden, um, Abu Musab al-Zaqari, the founder of Islamic State. All these groups and their founders who pertain to the Hadiths and the teaching of Ibn Tamir, Ibn Hambali, as well as the radical imams in Saudi Arabia like Ibn Ba'z, Muhammad Hassan. Um, This radical Wahhabi, Salafi interpretations that go in direct defiance of the Quran and the Prophet Muhammad. As you could see why Egypt itself went through many transformations, and which is why it's so important for one to understand how groups like al-Qaeda began. Because all these groups had a beginning. All these individuals had a start in life, how they became radicalized when they weren't before. Osama bin Laden was not a full-on radical. He actually went to the uh, university to study electrical engineering in Riyadh. Um, Ayman al-Swahadi, al Asa University. Muhammad um, Atta, who was the alleged ringleader of the September 11th Hamburg cell, um, he too went to the University of Cairo. He went to, even to the, I'm sorry, not the University of Cairo, but to the uh, University in Germany. Along with, Abu Musab al zakari Abu Musab al zakari wasn't a religious fundamentalist. He was a pimp, a murderer, transformed by the ideology of Muhammad al-Makdisi, acting as his spiritual advisor in a Jordanian prison cell. Many of these fundamentalists started out as petty criminals, drunks, um, People who didn't matter in society, a way of life. It wasn't until a certain event within their lives transformed them to become fundamentalist, not just religiously, but politically. Because most of these terrorist attacks have nothing to do with anti-Western lifestyle, as Khatub once wrote in his book, uh, The Problem That I Have Seen, uh, The America That I Have Seen. Um, many of these people We're hypocrites. And so their hatred was not for our Western way of life or secular way of life. It was through our prejudicial and very detriment um, political affiliations with certain countries in the Middle East, that of Saudi Arabia and Israel. Our foreign policy is an atrocious policy that has killed millions of people. And I don't need to reiterate here uh, just regarding the Iraq War of 2003, in which now we have seen over 2 million Iraqis killed based on lies, falsehoods. Iraq had nothing to do with the attacks of September 11th. They did not have weapons of mass destruction that were ready to build nuclear weapons, like Benjamin Netanyahu once proclaimed in a uh, Senate Select Committee in 2002. or the constant drone bombings of Barack Obama in Pakistan, Yemen, Iraq, Afghanistan, Libya, Syria, the countries that were former pan-Arabists, such as Syria, Libya, Afghanistan, Iraq, are decimated countries. And the countries that promulgate this radical ideology of Wahhabi Islam, such as Saudi Arabia and Pakistan, are left unscathed for they serve a purpose. And that purpose is the war on terror and the expansion of Western imperialism, as well as the continued debasement of the Palestinian problem in Israel, as well as the fallacious and transparent Saudi kingdom wanting to be the only true Arab power in the Middle East by using the United States to destabilize their preconceived enemies and the Shia minority. That's all for this episode of The Dark dower I'm Adam Fitzgerald, and see you at the next episode.